I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by my heritage colleague, Tom Jipping. Tom, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about some pretty big issues, abortion, capital punishment, and iPhones. So first up, what's happening at the Supreme Court this week? Well, on Monday, they released orders and opinions. First up is Apple Inc. versus Pepper. This was a 5-4 decision by Justice Kavanaugh, joined by uh, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, allowing an antitrust suit concerning Apple's iPhone app store to go forward. So, Tom, what happened here and how concerned should Apple be? Well, the the issue in this case, and this is early in the whole uh, litigation, the issue here is who the iPhone owners are supposed to sue. Basically, the iPhone owners, and of course, you, you have to buy Apple apps in the app store. And there's a, a 30% sort of markup when you when you buy them. And so the iPhone owners were saying that violates the antitrust laws. They're charging too much. But the question is, do you, do you sue the developer of the app because they're the one that sets the price? Mm-hmm. Or do you sue Apple because they're the ones that actually sell it to you? And the 5-4 decision written by Justice Kavanaugh was that you can sue Apple. It was just the direct purchaser sort of idea. Mm-hmm. And Justice Gorsuch, who was also appointed by President Trump, wrote the dissenting opinion uh, who said that, uh, no, we ought to look at it in terms of uh, more economic reality because the the way the majority looked at it was just this sort of inflexible, arbitrary rule that didn't make uh, economic sense. I wonder what kind of apps that the the challengers are, are, are suing over because I'm thinking of the apps that I have and – you know, I don't think I've ever paid more than four bucks for an app. Well, so. Yeah, I'm 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 a, I'm a pretty low low maintenance, low cost <laughs> technology user too, but a lot of people are not. Uh, so moving on, just quickly mentioning an, another opinion, Cochise Consultancy. This is a unanimous by Justice Thomas, looking at when the statute of limitation runs for a False Claims Act suit brought by a Keytam relator, and where the government is aware of the claims but declines to intervene in the suit. Um, So in this case, a company uh, may have fraudulently billed the government for providing security services in Iraq in in the early years of the war through 2007. And the company is claiming in this False Claims Act suit that there's a three-year statute of limitation, which would bar the relator's claim. Uh, they, They cite this statutory provision that deals with, quote, the government official charged with responsibility to act. But in Thomas's unanimous opinion, he explained that the relator in this case is a private party and can't be the government official so that a longer statute of limitation in another code section applies to him. But moving on to um, perhaps the biggest case of the week, Franchise Tax Board of California versus Hyatt. Uh, this was a 5-4 opinion, also written by Justice Thomas, joined by Chief Justice Roberts uh, and Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. And... This one is making headlines not for what it held, but for what it may portend for the future. So the court reversed a 1979 decision, Nevada versus Hall, that allowed private parties to sue a state in another state's court. The Supreme Court uh, concluded that Nevada versus Hall is contrary to our constitutional design and the understanding of sovereign immunity shared by the states that ratified the Constitution. So after Thomas walks through, in his majority opinion, all the reasons that the decision was wrong, they then went on to hold that stare decisis considerations couldn't save Nevada versus Hill because the decision is an outlier in the court's sovereign immunity jurisprudence. 
Now, Justice Breyer wrote a dissent, joined by Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan, arguing that the relevant history encouraged but did not demand that each state afford another state sovereign immunity in, in their courts. Breyer went on to say that there was no good reason to overrule Nevada versus Hall, and expressing fear where the, uh, the majority's willingness to overrule Hall could lead, Breyer concluded saying this, the majority has surrendered to the temptation to overrule Hall, even though it is a well-reasoned decision that has caused no serious practical problems in the four decades since we decided it. Today's decision can only cause uh, one to wonder which cases the court will overrule next. And of course, Justice Breyer is wondering about Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. So on the heels of this decision coming out on Monday, the state of Alabama passed a new law prohibiting most abortions and subjecting doctors who perform abortions to jail time. And this has a lot of people speculating about whether the Supreme Court will have an opportunity to review Roe v. Wade and Casey in the coming years and where Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts might come down in such a case. So, Tom, last summer when Justice Kennedy retired, um, there was a lot of discussion of Roe v. Wade. CNN analyst Jeffrey Tubin actually predicted that abortion would be illegal in 20 states within 18 months. So what do you think? Is his prediction coming true? Well, it, it was a little bit of a strange prediction <laughs> because he didn't clarify whether he was talking about 20 states would pass laws prohibiting abortion or whether abortion, in fact, would be legal in 20 states, which would require overruling Roe versus Wade. <laughs> um, you know, commentators get uh, get a little bit of leeway there to kind of throw those things out there. Uh, some states have uh, passed more restrictive laws, uh, bans on abortion early in pregnancy, things like that, uh, in the last year or so. But at the same time, uh, ever since Roe versus Wade, uh, hundreds and hundreds of state laws have been passed all over the country. They mm -hmm. continue to be uh, to try to restrict or regulate abortion, and some of them with an eye toward giving the Supreme Court an opportunity to revisit whether Roe versus Wade ought to, ought to still be on the book. So, you know, on the one hand, this is just part of the same trend that's been going on for more than four decades. Uh, but, but probably the change in the personnel of the Supreme Court has given state legislators a little bit more encouragement to mm -hmm. perhaps be bolder in some of the uh, laws that they're passing. And another thing to highlight is the fact that the court doesn't have to take up an abortion case. If one makes its way through the lower courts, uh, there there's no requirement that the that the court grant cert. Uh, so, you know, they, I mean, they, what, they may not take something up for a long time. Well, one of the most misleading things, as you remember, from the last couple of Supreme Court confirmation hearings last year for Justice Kavanaugh, the year before for Justice Gorsuch, was that uh, liberal activists and many in the media give people the impression that, A, you know, courts can just get up in the morning and decide, <laughs> well, what, what issues do we want to decide today and what, what you know, disputes do we want to settle? And B, that judges decide cases always based on their personal views. Well, neither one of those is true. Yeah. So as a result, what you're hearing now is, ooh, Alabama just passed this law. Well, next week, the Supreme Court is probably going to... No, <laughs> no, that's not the way the judicial system works. As you know, the, the Supreme Court is most likely to take a case when two different lower courts 
rule on the same issue in opposite ways, mm-hmm. and then there's a dispute that they need to settle. Well, that's going to require one court of appeals upholding a law like Alabama's and one court striking it down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the chances of that happening are, are pretty slim. And as you say, at the same time, the court gets – what, 8,000 appeals a year and decides about 75 cases? Just do the math. Okay, moving to the orders list. Uh, There were no grants in new cases this week. There were a couple of disappointing denials. Uh, Tree of Life Christian Schools versus City of Upper Arlington. This was a challenge to the denial of zoning approval for a Christian school to operate in an area where the city had allowed daycares and other similar businesses to operate. So that was a little disappointing, um, particularly for our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom who were representing the school. And then Beerman versus Waltz, this is a challenge to a state designating uh, a union as the exclusive representative for Medicaid providers who are not public employees. It seems with with this denial and uh, an earlier denial in another post-Janus case, uh, that the court is not ready to revisit uh, the union issue quite yet. The justices continue to air their internal disagreement uh, over the handling of last-minute request to stay executions. The latest came this week in the denial of Price versus Dunn, an Eighth Amendment challenge to Alabama's use of midazolam instead of pentobarbital, uh, saying that there was no evidence of a, a willing supplier or that pentobarbital is readily available in that state. So Justice Thomas concurred in the denial and was joined by Alito and Gorsuch. And Thomas said he was writing a a separate statement about this denial to, quote, set the record straight uh, regarding other orders earlier this year in stays of execution. Um, he, He said that the dissent had omitted any discussion of extensive procedural protections afforded to the individual before last-minute dilatory filings. And and he further wrote, it is difficult to see his litigation strategy as anything other than an attempt to delay his execution, yet four members of the court would have countenanced his tactics without a shred of legal support. So the uh, the battle over, over capital punishment continues, uh, particularly on the, the court's so-called uh, shadow docket. So, Tom, do you have any thoughts on, well, it, on that? Well, that battle, of course, has been going on for a long, long time. Decades ago, the conflict was over the more basic question of does the Constitution just prohibit capital punishment? It clearly does not. But And so now it's shifted a little bit to more of these procedural kinds of issues. And, and I, I got the sense that Justice Thomas was somewhat annoyed <laughs> that, you know, it's like – Justices who have lost the the battle on the first question are still going to try to kind of tinker with the system and try to prevent you know executions that rightfully should go forward on some of these somewhat sneaky you know kind of grounds, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where probably the battle's being fought right now. There there are some of those issues over the drugs that are being used and. You know, the death penalty, probably like abortion and maybe uh, First Amendment religion cases, that's probably one of the most messed up areas of constitutional <laughs> jurisprudence by the Supreme Court. They, they continue to amaze me. All right. Well, moving on, I recently spoke with CNN's Joan Biskupic. Joan Biskupic is a legal analyst with CNN and author of a new biography about John Roberts called The Chief. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Joan. Thank you, Elizabeth. You've covered the Supreme Court for 25 years. How did you come to be on the Supreme Court beat? 
I had a natural interest in it. I uh, covered politics first, uh, starting in Wisconsin. And, you know, politics always often bleeds into the law and legal issues. And when I first came to Washington, gosh, nearly 30 years ago, I worked first for Congressional Quarterly as a legal affairs journalist covering the Judiciary Committees on the Hill. And then pretty quickly got picked up at the Washington Post as its Supreme Court reporter in 1992. And I spent the 90s there focused on the Supreme Court. And I kept switching uh, news organizations, but never giving up the beat. (laughs) I went from the Washington Post to USA Today to Reuters and now to CNN. And even though I keep writing for different and broader audiences, I just have not been able to let go of this beat. Uh, As you've probably heard, many of the people who work at the court who aren't justices and cover the court, it feels like we are all appointed for life. (laughs) That's great. So before we get into your book, I'd like to discuss an article that you wrote that was published uh, not too long ago about what the Supreme Court is doing behind closed doors. So could you talk a little bit about the justices' conferences, things like the discuss list, the cert pool, how many votes are needed to take various actions? Sure. This is something that I picked up on over the course of my reporting, not just for the book on John Roberts, but just being in the trenches for so many years. You know, we're all aware of the fact that the justices hear arguments and issue signed rulings, you know, in about 60 to 70 cases each year. But that's only a half, essentially, of their work. They're deciding what to decide on a weekly basis, culling through an estimated 7,000 petitions from people who've lost their cases in lower courts. Now, of course, they don't even look at those petitions, you know, one-on-one. They're uh, looking at a very, very, very small fraction of those that have been sifted through by their law clerks and then by each other and discuss only a handful of them in their private conferences and then vote on what to pick up. And I thought it would be great to try to bring readers behind the scenes to let people know what goes on in that uh, private conference room off the chambers of the Chief Justice and to fill people in a little bit on the internal rules that are not made public but that I've picked up through the years. So tell me a little bit about some of those uh, not public rules. Well, we do know that uh, it takes four justices to grant a petition, and that's that's well known. That's pretty well known. But one thing I found out is that when uh, a losing party wants to jump over appeals courts and go right to the Supreme Court after losing in a district court, as, as the Trump administration has done in uh, a couple of cases so far this term, that takes five votes because it's such an extraordinary action that uh, the losing party is looking for. It's extraordinary review rather than going through the usual process of having an appeals court resolution first before going to the the justices. And that takes that takes five votes, I discovered. And then, you know, I I I think most uh, well some of your listeners might already know that it takes four votes to call for the views of the solicitor general and that's one order that they do put on their um public orders list but they don't put many of their votes or actions that are taken behind the scenes uh on that list unless it's an outright rejection or a grant for example if they're holding a case uh an action that takes four votes if Uh, to hold a case for uh, a related one that's already been picked up, that's something that they 
they vote on, but they don't uh, they don't reveal it. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, when they've uh, dismissed a case as improvidently granted, as they did last week, uh, that takes five votes, but you don't know the vote is never revealed. It doesn't. It isn't revealed. And then, you know, finally, in death penalty cases, they have that interesting complication that uh, it takes four justices to grant a petition from uh, an inmate who's facing execution, but five votes to block that individual's execution. So in theory, and sometimes in reality, I wrote, uh, the court might have enough votes to review the prisoner's legal question, but not enough votes to prevent his execution before the hearing. That certainly has been a topic that's been in the news quite a bit this spring. And in in the article, you talk about how uh, it doesn't appear that the court is following the same rules for every case. What do you think is going on there? Well, the dissenting justices have tried to call attention to that. And it's again, it's hard to know what really is going on because all we see is what becomes public. And earlier um, in April, and when I say earlier, I mean like early in the morning uh, <laughs> on April 12th. Remember that 3 a.m. order or just before 3 a.m. order we got that uh, let an execution order go forward, even though the execution itself was temporarily postponed, but it let the execution otherwise go forward. Justice Stephen Breyer dissented and uh, said that his the conservative justices in the majority were essentially allowing arbitrary implementation of the death penalty. And he said, if, if you had only waited a few more hours until our regularly scheduled meeting in the conference room that, that Friday morning, it would have been fairer. And as you probably remember, Justice Breyer wrote, to proceed this way calls into question the basic principle of fairness that should underlie our criminal justice system. And he said it was unfortunate, I think that that was the word he, he used, unfortunate that his colleagues in the majority would feel like they should go ahead and allow um, to, to reject the condemned inmate's claim without following what he believed were the usual processes. And uh, you know, people viewing this thought it was unusual to have this public spat, uh, this this private spat go public. Mm-hmm. But it also it also reinforced the idea that uh, we don't know whether the court majority is arbitrarily applying rules, you know, in death penalty cases and others, unless we you know can see a little bit more about what's going on there, the votes and the legal reasoning. So as you mentioned, it takes four justices to grant cert in a case. Uh, And you mentioned in the article that some justices won't vote for cert unless they know where a likely fifth justice is on the issue. Is this a common practice among the justices? I don't know how common it is, but I know it's been going on for decades because that's that's the conundrum that many of them have. You know, they, they perhaps might think it would be important to resolve a split in the circuits or take up an important question uh, of national consequence, but can they count on a fifth vote? You know, this would happen a lot when Justice Kennedy was on the bench because he was he would waver so much. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember in the first round of cases that went up on um, gay marriage, there was a reluctance on the part of the more liberal justices who would support same-sex marriage to take up cases too soon when they weren't sure where, where Justice Kennedy was. You know, as we both know, in 2015, he cast the crucial fifth vote to 
uphold same-sex marriage as a fundamental right in the Constitution. But there was uncertainty among uh, his his colleagues on the right and on the left as to what he would do uh, until it got to that moment. So moving on to your book, in the epilogue, you mentioned that Chief Justice Roberts believes a biography should wait until he's long gone from the court. So why did you decide to write about him at this point in his career? Well, I first of all, he and I are nearly the same age. Uh, I'm only a little bit younger. And I said, <laughs> if I waited until you were long gone, I'd be long gone too. Uh, but look, think of what he is. He's. We've had, you know, 45 presidents of the United States and only 17 chief justices. He's so important at the top of the third branch at this very crucial time in American history. He had never been the subject of a serious biography, yet there was so much focus on what he would do in in crucial cases, especially after the retirement of Anthony Kennedy last summer. And I also wanted to figure out exactly what went on in the healthcare case of uh, 2012. So, you know, I think there were, there were so many reasons to do it and so, so few reasons uh, to back away from it. So you sat down with the chief for more than 20 hours in the process of writing this book. What were those conversations like? I think they were difficult on uh, both parts. There was a series of negotiations we had over what could end up in the book and what couldn't. Mm-hmm. So these were these were difficult interviews. He didn't he didn't enjoy the process very much, I don't think. Although he did write me a note later saying that he ended up being far more cooperative than he had anticipated going into it. But I think it's because he was a reluctant subject for a couple reasons. He doesn't believe that people's background informs their views on the court, that, you know, Mm -hmm. individual justice looks at the law, looks at a federal statute, and neutrally applies the law. As he famously said in his 2005 confirmation hearings, you know, we're like umpires calling balls and strikes. So he doesn't think that his personal uh, views come into it that much. So I don't think he was interested in telling people about his biography. And then I think he's also a naturally reserved individual. If I heard it once, I heard it a hundred times from his mm-hmm. family members and colleagues. Uh, John Roberts keeps his cards close to the vest, and indeed he does. So one of my favorite parts of the book is where you describe Roberts starting a new job in the White House Counsel's office. He got a phone call from the White House operator asking him to hold for President Reagan, and it turned out his new colleagues were playing a prank on him and had actually placed bets on how long he would hold for the president. And it it turns out it was about 15 or 20 minutes. So I think this anecdote highlights how Roberts is a nice, somewhat naive Midwesterner. But in the book, you also paint a picture of another John Roberts, a shrewd political operator, uh, as evidenced, for example, by when he asked another lawyer, another conservative lawyer, to denounce him as a squish during his second nomination to the D.C. Circuit. So after studying him closely, how would you describe the real John Roberts? Those are great examples you just mentioned from the book, Elizabeth, because I think that, well, first of all, the anecdote uh, from when he was with President Reagan, he was in his mid-20s. So he he could be more naive than uh, than today, of course, but but I think he's 
a bit of all of the above. I think he still has, you know, some Midwestern, upper mm-hmm. Midwestern temperament to be sure. I still think, I definitely think he's a, a shrewd uh, operator behind the scenes. I also think he's, you know, brilliant and uh, uh, certainly, you know, well-read, uh, a student of history, someone who, uh, as I write in the book, is always wondering if he will be regarded as um, Chief Justice John Marshall or Chief Justice Roger Tawney, and certainly doesn't assume he'll be like the first, but definitely doesn't want to be like the second. So I think he has so many different things going on uh, as he as he navigates this the helm of the third branch. Personally, he's you know we we know we know many of his interests. He's an avid reader. He's a he's a big Dylan fan. He's a lot of things. So I tried to portray this very complicated person who holds so much of um, the direction of the law now in his hands. And I I, I don't think he could be uh, tricked by the kind of prank that was played on him in those Reagan years. But I still think he's he's got a, a bit of a playful side, as well as an incredibly serious, stern side that he brings to bear in the center chair of the court right now. So in addition to sitting down with Chief Justice Roberts, you reference interviewing several of the other justices throughout the book. So how did you get them to speak so frankly with you, particularly about closed-door negotiations over things like the rulings in NFIB versus Sibelius and the first Fisher versus University of Texas case? You go back to them over and over and over. Now, I should tell you that the affirmative action switch in Fisher versus the University of Texas at Austin, I had discovered when I was writing my political history of uh, Sonia Sotomayor. That's the book that came out in 2014. And of course, I had done uh, two earlier biographies of justices, the Sandra Day O'Connor one in 2005 and the Antonin Scalia one in 2009. So during all the interviews that I did for those books, I built up relationships with the justices. Mm -hmm. So I had access to a majority throughout all of John Roberts' tenure. In fact, you know, some of the things that I learned from Justice Scalia when I had 12 on-the-record interviews with him for that book, I didn't necessarily use all of it for the Scalia bio, but then it was helpful for the John Roberts bio because, you know, Justice Scalia is assessing his new chief justice right around the time that I'm uh, – you know, that the that John Roberts has come in. So, you know, so much of what I included in the Scalia book was, you know, Scalia-focused. But then when I went back to all those transcripts for the Roberts book, I, I, I discovered more information that was helpful to me. But those, those earlier interviews for the Justices O'Connor and Scalia books certainly informed um, – my relationships and understanding of the court, and then helped when I needed to get information about um, some of the most important cases of John Roberts' tenure. And so I knew about the switched vote in the Fisher case, the Abigail Fisher case, uh, for the earlier book, and I included it there, but then I elaborated a little bit more in the John Roberts book. And then for the health care case, you know, I was interviewing justices, I was interviewing former law clerks, and I had suspected a bit about the change in the on the individual mandate because, as many of your um, listeners will remember, 
Jan Crawford had written a bit about that and mm-hmm. the anger from the conservative side back in 2012. But I was able to learn more about that incident as well as John Roberts' switch vote on the Medicaid expansion section of the law, which was so startling to me when I first found out. But then, Elizabeth, I couldn't I couldn't just go with it, hearing it only from one person. I then had to make sure that that was true because nobody had suspected that. So speaking of the NFIB case, there are a lot of theories about why Roberts changed his vote uh, for the Medicaid expansion and also the individual mandate. What do you think happened? Okay, I am willing to say I don't know for certain what one reason was there. And I don't think it, there was a single reason. I, As I write, you know, I think his, his move could have been born of the con- a concern for the business of health care, uh, his worries about uh, the legitimacy and legacy of his chief justiceship intertwined with concerns about the legitimacy and legacy of the Supreme Court, you know, and perhaps, you know, what he, he truly did have a change of heart uh, about uh, and a new understanding of congressional taxing power. And I, I think there were a couple of strands that all emerged together, including the fact that this was 2012, an election year when it was such a politicized issue with every single Republican candidate who was running for president saying that he, he or she would, you know, move to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So there was so much going on in the political sphere over the signature domestic achievement of President Barack Obama, that I think that also factored into it. And, you know, the chief would not explain it to me. He wouldn't explain it beyond what he had written in his opinion. But the way what I conclude is that this case added a new dimension to a man who insisted that he always decided cases based on the law, that he always called cases, you know, balls and strikes looking right at a strike zone as an umpire would. But in this one, I think that... uh, you know, his critics were right that his moves were not consistent and the legal arguments were not entirely coherent, but it might have been for the good of the country. You know, people have very different views about how it all ended up. And I do know that people still approach Chief Justice John Roberts and thank him for that ruling. So thinking big picture here, what do you think will be the legacy of the Roberts court? Or is it still too soon to tell? Well, here's what I would say to that. I think it. I think already we know where he's been on race, and you probably see in the book that I devote a whole chapter to what he's done on voting rights and his views of racial remedies, uh, such as affirmative action. I think he will always believe that those do more harm than good. He has said that. He famously wrote, uh, the way to stop discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race. So I think we know where he is. Uh, where he is at on race, certainly. I think we also know where he's at on religion and some Mm -hmm. of the culture war issues. But I think overall, it is indeed too soon to tell. You know, he hasn't even served 15 years yet. Uh, He is going to be a different chief justice because of the retirement of centrist conservative Anthony Kennedy. He is now the justice at the ideological median of this court, and it is up to John Roberts uh, whether this court continues to be a little steadier as Anthony Kennedy uh, 
vote uh, insured or if he moves more to the right as his uh, perhaps conservative, as, I won't even say perhaps, as his conservative inclinations have been since he came on in um, 2005. So I think we, there are, are certain patterns we've already detected, but overall, it, many more chapters have to be written about John Roberts. And it truly is the Roberts court now that Justice Kennedy has retired. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So one final question, something that I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Okay. And I know you asked this of everyone, and I know you've gotten so many John Marshall answers. <laughs> yeah, that's so I am gonna spare you that. And I will I will go more recent. I'll go I'll go with Earl Warren for a couple reasons. One is here he was, an appointee of a Republican president. President Eisenhower, he became this liberal voice of the court, working with William Brennan as his lieutenant to change so much of the law in America, all the while facing, you know, impeach Earl Warren signs in the South mm-hmm. and and making such dramatic moves. So I'd be interested in, uh, you know, just what his what his mindset was when he first came into office and where the momentum came from, given that he was he was regarded as uh, far from a liberal back in uh, California when he was governor, but then became the, as I say, the, the liberal voice of the high court at such a pivotal time in America and what that might have been like. And uh, uh, I understand why so many of your uh, your subjects turned to John Marshall, the the great Chief Justice, and I would reinforce that he was our our great Chief Justice. But uh, wanting a little variety in your <laughs> in your program, I'll go with Earl Warren. And I, you know, frankly, I I even find Warren Burger interesting because you know he you know there. Think of think of his upper Midwestern roots himself in mm-hmm. Minnesota. You know, he he went to Knight Law School and he becomes Chief Justice of the United States. You know, I find that fascinating. And I actually found William Rehnquist, uh, another Midwesterner from Wisconsin, uh, fascinating too. So I don't think of all uh, of all seventeen, I'd be hard pressed to say which ones I I wouldn't be interested in talking to. But for purposes of you today, uh, I'll go ahead and go with Earl Warren. It would be great to be able to make your way through uh, through all of the chief justices throughout history and have a conversation with, with each of them. Well, Joan, thank you so much for joining, and I will be sure to share a link to, to purchase your uh, fantastic book. It's available on Amazon and basically anywhere you get your books, uh, The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. And thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Elizabeth. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia. Capital Punishment Edition. I'm going to try to stump my co-host, Tom Jipping. Are you ready? I guess so. Okay, first question. In what case did the Supreme Court rule that capital punishment violates the Eighth Amendment? That would be 1972 Furman versus Georgia. That is correct. Second question. I want to know what I get if I answer these questions <laughs> right. Uh, I know I get embarrassment if I get them wrong, but I'd like to know what I... <laughs> Bragging rights in the office. <laughs> That'll have to do. Okay, second question. How many years was it before the court flip-flopped in Gregg versus Georgia, finding that capital punishment isn't per se unconstitutional and it could serve the social purposes of retribution and deterrence? So how many years? My guess was just four. That's correct. It was 1976. 
And an interesting note about both Furman and and Greg, uh, both of those decisions. So Furman was a 5-4 ruling. It was a per curiam opinion. And then the five uh, the five justices voting in, you know, in the majority all wrote their own concurring opinions, but none of them joined anybody else's opinion. So that five separate concurring opinions <laughs> plus the per curiam opinion. People think it's just the Supreme Court saying, <laughs> you know, X or Y. Uh, sometimes it can be really hard to figure out what's going on. And then in the Greg case, four years later, uh, there actually wasn't a majority opinion Although there were only two justices that dissented, but there were several, you know, three justice, uh, I'm not even sure you'd call it a plurality, uh, opinions. Um, So kind of interesting. But one final note, now retired justice uh, John Paul Stevens voted in the 1976 case to reinstate the death penalty. But of course, decades later, he would come to say that he regretted that decision. Okay, third question. What phrase from the 1958 case, Trop versus Dulles, has become a touchstone of the court's Eighth Amendment jurisprudence? The, the court defined a, uh, an Eighth Amendment violation as evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. One of the scariest phrases to ever <laughs> come from the Supreme Court. And one that Justice Kennedy really loved. <laughs> uh, well, and in many instances, the court has anointed it itself the sole decider of what these evolving standards are. Okay, fourth question. When was the earliest recorded death sentence carried out in the colonies? Oh, goodness. If you could give me a ballpark range, that's good enough. In the colonies? I'm guessing like the 1720s? Even earlier, 1608. Oh, my gosh. Captain George Kendall was executed by firing squad at the Jamestown colony for spying for the Spanish government. And they, they barely got out of the boats and they <laughs> took care of that problem. Yeah. And uh, I, I read that under the divine moral and martial laws that governed Virginia in the 17th century, offenses included stealing grapes and killing chickens. And these were punishable by death. Now, I'm from Kentucky. We do love our fried chicken there, but I'm not sure that— Those those standards have evolved, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, stealing chicken would be a capital punishment. Um, okay, fifth question. Which justice has taken to describing, sometimes in excruciating detail, the crimes committed by a defendant challenging his conviction to counter the opinions written by other members of the court that tend to gloss over the nitty-gritty details of the crime? That would be Justice Thomas. That is correct. And some recent examples include a dissent from Tharp versus Sellers last term and a concurrence in the denial of cert in Reynolds versus Florida earlier this in term. In fact, he did that in the case that we just talked about uh, with regard to the death penalty where um, he said, you know, it's, let's not forget the victim. Let's not yeah. forget what actually happened here. Yeah, I think those, uh, those concurring opinions and dissents are, are very powerful. Okay, this is a bonus question. Which one of our heritage colleagues was cited by the Supreme Court in a death penalty case? <laughs> I'm guessing Paul Larkin. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. He he wrote uh, a note when he was at Stanford Law Review, uh, The Eighth Amendment and the Execution of the Presently Incompetent in the 1980 edition of Stanford's Law Review. And it was cited in uh, in, in a Supreme Court decision in 1986. Can, can you picture... 
a Paul's photo in his yearbook, and underneath it says "most likely to get cite," you know, cited by the Supreme <laughs> Court or something. That's definitely Paul. It definitely is. Well, Tom, I, you did a fantastic job on Supreme Trivia, and thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.